He had lived in the Endicott Appalachian area since 1934. Until the notorious gangland convention at his Appalachian estate, he was regarded by almost all those who knew him as a hardworking and successful businessman. Few had any idea that Barbara's past contained links to unsolved murders in the Scranton, Wilkes Bar, Pittston area, or that he was well acquainted with many of the country's top hoodlums. The facade he had worked so hard to create was destroyed on the balmy afternoon of November 14, 1957, when he played host at what was to become the most famous barbecue in history. End quote. The legends of America's mobs are woven into the fabric of society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the tales of these criminal organizations. Their stories of power, wealth, respect, family, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mobs may be over, organized crime continues to thrive, and the stories remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Gangland History Podcast, hosted by mob historian Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind organized crime in America. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Gangland History Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, mob enthusiast, history buff, historian. Uh, just a reminder, this is going to be probably the last one. Uh, the Gangland History Podcast is formerly the members-only podcast. Um, so today's episode, uh, again, I'm having to cut a new intro because uh, each time I have done this episode i didn't realize just how long it ended up being in terms of the pre-recorded material that i had developed but we're going to cover the final part of the joseph barbara uh series uh and we're finally going to get into appalachian and the aftermath um it's been a really interesting series so far I highly recommend that if you haven't seen parts one and two, go back and watch them first. We cover Barbara's uh, upbringing in Castellamare del Golfo, Sicily, uh, his immigration to the United States in the early 1920s, his kind of first jobs as he gets into the United States. We cover how Barbara gets involved in organized crime, how he becomes associated with the Volpe organization in northeastern Pennsylvania and upstate New York, how he eventually becomes a uh, bodyguard and driver for Santo Volpe, the don of northeastern Pennsylvania in around the, the early part of the 1930s, how he's doing hits, uh, you know, at, at the early part of the 1930s uh, as part of the beer wars and some other vendettas. Uh, in the northeastern Pennsylvania area. We then move into his legitimate enterprises. He becomes associated with several beverage and bottling companies, uh, most notably the Canada Dry Bottling Company. He uses strong arm methods to kind of get in and get what he wants and establishes himself as a legitimate businessman in the mid-1930s and 1940s. And we pick up the story here in the 1950s, where we're sitting right on the precipice of the Appalachian Conference uh, in 1957. So we're going to talk about Barbara's involvement in that event and the aftermath uh, and how his life ultimately ended. 
Uh, but before we get into the episode, I just want to thank everybody. We're doing a lot of uh, we're doing a lot of things uh, with the podcast. We're pushing out more content. I do plan at some point to get into and return to the Angelo Bruno story to finish it off, so to speak. Uh, I want to do the Castella Marese War, uh, and you know we've got a little uh, a lot of really exciting updates coming down the pipe. Um, now, what I would ask is that you please uh, subscribe share, you know, share the podcast, help me grow. My goal is to get to 10,000 subscribers, hopefully, you know, at some point in March. Uh, we're pacing quite nicely. We've been experimenting uh, with shorts uh, and doing those, and that's been pretty awesome in terms of just opening up our videos to, to new members. Um, we're also building the Patreon channel. It's still not quite ready, but it's coming. Uh, and we're also transitioning the website from membersonlypodcast.com to the ganglandhistorypodcast.com. So uh, lots of good things in store. But without further ado, let's get into part three of the Joseph Barbara story. investigation conducted by FBI Special Agents Patrick A. Munley and James C. Mee from April 28, 1958 to May 1, 1958 would reveal more about Barbara's daily routine, a little insight into the overall setup of his estate, large group gatherings over the years, and finally the events that lead up to November 14, 1957. Quote, Confidential informant Albany T-34, whose reliability is unknown at the present time due to the fact that there have only been a few contacts made with him, advised that he has been associated with Joseph Barbara Sr. since March of 1955 and has had access to the estate and the home of Joseph Barbara since that time. He advised that when he first became acquainted with Mr. Barbara, it was the usual routine for Barbara to leave his home about 6 a.m. in the morning to go to the Canada Dry Bottling Company plant in Endicott, New York, and that he would return home around 3 p.m. for his meal and then would return to the plant and return home later in the evening. He usually drove himself to and from the plant and on his business trips around the Binghamton, New York area. He stated that the home of Joseph Barbara was always well supplied with food and drink. He related that in the basement of the home, canned goods, soup, soft drink, ice cream, fish, and other items are maintained in ice cream coolers, and that also in a separate section of the basement are foods such as oranges, grapefruits, and other fruits. He stated that there was nothing unusual about the basement, no vaults or safes or any locked rooms maintained there. He related that in the garage, Barbara maintains a walk-in meat cooler and ice cream freezer and a shelf-type freezer wherein meats and vegetables are stored. He stated that there is only one phone line into the home of Barbara, but there are connections from Barbara's home to the summer house and also to the other two homes that are maintained on the Barbara estate. He related the phone connections between the main home and the summer house and the two houses on the estate are strictly house phones and not connected with the main telephone line. 
He said when he was first in the employ of Barbara, he noticed that an Italian couple named Lucille, last name unknown, and Joe, last name unknown, visited the Barbaras frequently during the years 1955 to 1956. He believed Lucille was a nurse and Joe worked in a furniture store in Endicott, New York. He said he also noticed that Emmanuel Zakari visited Barbara regularly. He said that from what he observed, Zakari and Barbara were old friends and frequently Zakari brought his wife with him. He also advised that Russell Buffalino was a frequent visitor at Barbara's home. He stated that from his recollection since 1955, there have been three what he would call big parties held at the home of Joseph Barbara. He stated that in the fall of 1955, a large group of men was at Barbara's home. He related that this group numbered about 35 men, that in the summer of 1957, there was another large group of people, both men and women, and this party was considered an engagement party for Barbara's daughter, Angela. The next group that he recalls was on November 14, 1957. He related, when each of these groups was at Barbara's home, they appeared to be regular barbecues where people were walking around the estate and steaks were being cooked and other food was being served to the guests. At no other time, he said that he had noticed any large gathering in Barbara's home or on the estate. He said that on numerous occasions, Barbara had visitors at his home during the day, at which time they would have lunch and visit and then leave the estate. He said these luncheons never included more than three or four individuals. In connection with the November 14, 1957 group, he related he had no advance notice that such a large group was going to be at Barbara's. He said that on November 13, 1957, Mr. Barbara redacted in the early morning hours that there was an order of meat at Armour and uh, Company in Br Binghamton, New York, to be picked up and that he could pick it up any time during that day. He said that this was the usual thing for him because he had been doing the same thing since 1955 and had picked up vegetables and fruit at the Green Lantern, groceries from Mc, uh, McTiggy Groceries, and other items at different stores at Endicott and Binghamton, New York. He said that it was his job to see that the fireplaces at the summer house always had charcoal and wood, and it was his recollection that Mr. Barbara asked him on the 13th whether or not there was enough charcoal and wood at the fireplaces, but he is not sure of that. He relates that he recalls no activity at the Barbara home on the night of the 13th of November, but that in the morning of November 14th, around 9.30 to 10 a.m., he noticed a few cars and a few people at the Barbara home and that thereafter individuals were gradually appearing on the estate. He said all of the visitors were men and there were no women visitors on that particular day. He stated on the morning of November 14th, the only strange car that was on the estate was a black Cadillac sedan, but that he did not know the license plate as to whether it was from New York State or any other state. End quote. Now, this informant in particular, based on my best guess, was most likely one of the people Barbara had on staff to manage the property probably a groundskeeper. This person obviously was someone in a position to see all the comings and goings and didn't sound like anyone who would be considered connected, more like a civilian who just decided that they were going to spill the beans a little bit to, to the FBI. And a note I later found discussing the identity of, of informant T-34 would confirm actually that the man's name was Melvin J. Blossom, who had indeed been employed by Barbara since March of 1955. 
And this guy, like I just said, was spilling the beans on all the uh, goings on at the Barbara estate, including confirming photos of prospective attendees like Joe Cerrito as having been at the meeting. Uh, in the summer of 1957, Barbara would often make trips. Uh, so this is prior to the Appalachian meeting. Barbara would often make trips up to Buffalo, New York, sometimes with his family under the auspices of taking a vacation and would be noted as meeting with Stefano Magadino and John Montana of the Buffalo family. A different note stemming from a separate informant who was in fact the Barbara's maid related that around November 9th, 1957, uh, just a couple of days before the meeting, the entire Barbara family, with the exception of Barbara's son, Joseph, all drove to Buffalo, New York. Additionally, telephone records in the month before the meeting would show multiple calls placed to Buffalino family members, Russell Buffalino, William Medico, Dave Ostico, Emmanuel Zaccari, Santo Volpe, as well as uh, prominent members of the Magadino family, including John Montana, uh, as well as the aforementioned brothers Pat and Sam Monacino and Pittsburgh boss John LaRocca. So he's making calls all over the place. Uh, now, given that the allegedly the order for the meeting came down from Vito Genovese to Magadino, a trip to Buffalo five days before the meeting could, in fact, have just been a trip along with all the obvious correspondence. But I don't believe in coincidences, and if I had to guess, the elder Barbara probably stopped off to confer with the Buffalo boss, Stefano Magadino, regarding the upcoming summit and communicated with the others to arrange all the details uh, for, you know, he had been communicating probably for, for over a month and was really communicating in the time leading up to it. But again, that's just my speculation. Anyhow, as we know, the infamous Appalachian meeting would occur on November 14th, 1957 and would subsequently be raided and nearly a hundred gangsters would scatter everywhere into the woods, everywhere into the towns and most uh, would be apprehended uh, and it would become probably, you know, really one of the most uh, infamous, not in a good way and enduring events in the history of the American mafia. And when reached uh, via phone by the local papers in the days after the bus, Barbara would be quoted as saying the following, quote, I am sick. I am under a doctor's care. I don't know anything. Now, when the reporter asked him to verify that the men had been his guests, all he said was yes, end quote. In a report from the law enforcement man who is most generally credited with breaking up the meeting, Sergeant Edgar Croswell, uh, it advised that one of the reasons for following the many mobsters trickling into Barbara's home was as follows. Quote, subsequently on the morning of November 14th, 1957, the same officers mentioned above began further surveillance of the Vestal and Appalachian area. And in the afternoon of November 14th, 1957, observed a number of automobiles in the vicinity of the home of Joseph Barbara Sr., Appalachian, New York. Uh, upon observing these automobiles, the officers began to systematically secure the license plate numbers of the cars, and while doing so, noted that several individuals who were observed on Barbara's estate were fleeing into the woods nearby. The officers thereupon followed these individuals and secured their identification. Thereafter, the officers left the area and subsequently decided to identify everybody leaving the Barbara estate that day. This procedure continued until early morning of November 15th, 1957. 
the individuals who are listed below were identified as being at Barbara's house on November 14th, 1957. These individuals were not arrested, nor were photographs or fingerprints of them obtained. They were identified through various means of identification upon their person. The officers mentioned above advised the reason for the procedure in this matter was because of their longstanding interest in Barbara's activities and realizing that they had no warrants or process for these individuals wanted to identify them for future investigation of Barbara, end quote. In another pretty viable piece of information, this time from a case from January 12, 1960, entitled The United States of America versus Joseph Bonanno et al. Defendants, filed by the United States District Court out of the Southern District of New York, detailed that day at Appalachian and why the local police had kind of a hard-on for Barbara, uh, which was definitely a contributing factor to the breakup and the fiasco that became the meeting. Now, the first part of this uh, note from this case file is a little bit of legal jargon, but then you kind of begin to get into the meeting, the meeting itself. Quote, I shall not, in this opinion, concern myself with the evidence in this case which clearly established the falsehood of the defendant's statements to Croswell and other law enforcement officers and bodies, including federal grand juries. Suffice it to say that the jury found incredible the defense's position that over 60 individuals, many from California, Ohio, Texas, and other distant places in the United States and even Cuba— came together at Joseph Barbara's home located in a small, hard-to-find village called Appalachian at approximately the same time, a mid-week working day, without any plan or prearrangement to meet at his home. The jury must also have disbelieved the defendant's statements detailing their purposes for being at the gathering, which ranged from visiting a sick friend to attending a social function, no women or children were present, to buying real estate, to discussing the acquisition of beer equipment or a truck, to having a damaged car fixed. I emphasize that the jury must have found these statements false since the jury was charged specifically that before any defendant could be found guilty, it had to find that the defendant had not told the truth concerning the true nature and the purposes of the gathering at the Barbara estate. Furthermore, the jury was charged that a verdict of guilty could not be returned merely by a comparison of statements, but had to be based on affirmative proof supplied by the government, which would satisfy the jury of the falsity or evasiveness of the statements, end quote. Now, I think we can all agree it was no coincidence that everybody showed up at this this meeting and everybody, everybody across the board. Uh, that was was picked up was in some way, shape or form being evasive. But again, how do you prove that? And that that's, I think, what they're uh, what the case file here is specifically saying with respect to the meeting. And in this case, it's uh, a case file against Joe Bonanno. Now, the second part of this case file would go on to say the following. Joseph Barbara Sr., at whose estate the gathering took place, had long been under investigation by the New York police, including Sergeant Croswell. They believed him to have been involved in the manufacture and distribution of illegal alcohol in Pennsylvania. 
He had been picked up on suspicion of murder on three occasions and was suspected by the police in the Appalachian area of having been involved in two murders and two disappearances. Barbara Sr. had associated and met with racketeers in the Endicott, New York area and was generally considered by investigators as being behind the rackets in Broome County. In 1946, Barbara was convicted of an OPA violation involving the illegal acquisition of 300,000 pounds of sugar, a prime ingredient in the manufacture of alcohol. In 1949, defendant Pasquale Tergiano was arrested for operating a still. Barbara made payments on Tergiano's truck, conferred constantly with him during the period of investigation, and supplied sugar to Tergiano. Barbara also had connections with one Anthony Ziamba, who had also been arrested for illegal alcohol activities. In October 1956, a man named Galante was arrested for a traffic violation. One of his companions who ran off was Frank Garofalo. Upon investigating the incident, the police discovered that Garofalo had registered at the Arlington Hotel in Binghamton, New York, with Louis Volpe, Joseph Bonanno, a defendant, John Bonventre, a co-conspirator not indicted, and Joseph Barbara Sr., who had reserved the rooms and whose local Canada Dry Bottling Company paid the hotel bills. Galante, when arrested, exhibited the driver's license of Joseph de Palermo, who had a long list of alcohol violations. On November 13, 1957, Sergeant Croswell observed Barbara Jr. register for three rooms at the Parkway Motel near Appalachian in the name of the Canada Dry Bottling Company owned by his father. When later that day, two persons in an Ohio car arrived and took possession of one of the rooms, Sergeant Croswell asked the proprietor to have the two of them sign a registration card. The persons refused to do so. That evening, Sergeant Croswell contacted Agents Rooston and Brown of the United States Alcohol and Tobacco Tax Unit. He was aware of the 1956 gathering in which Barbara Sr. had taken part of Barbara's close association with Terigiano and Ziamba and his conviction for illegal acquisition of 300,000 pounds of sugar, a prime ingredient in the manufacture of alcohol, and thus believed that something having to do with their jurisdiction was brewing. At approximately 12.30 p.m. on November 14, 1957, the troopers and federal agents drove into the Barbara parking area. Basisco, who was driving, testified that there was never any intention to go past that point, and in fact, the car went no further. The officers stayed only a few minutes, during which time they observed some persons on the property and some 20 to 25 cars parked in various places, the bulk of them parked away from the normal parking area and near the Barbara barn. Croswell testified that he had never seen so many cars on the Barbara property before. End quote. Now, if you go to Google Maps and search up Joseph Barbara's address near the, the time of the Appalachian meeting, uh, which, according to my research, indicates that his residence was uh, along Old Route 17 near around 625 McFall Road in Appalachian, New York, you'll see that the residence was indeed on a hilltop and, like I said before, truly out in the middle of nowhere. I actually had a hard time myself finding the old house uh, and going up and down McFall Road on Google Maps, uh, but it is still, in fact, there and can be found on the Google Maps Street View. And like I said before, uh, it does have the original brick siding from the 1950s, though the residence is now called the Hidden Farm. 
Now, in the days after the Appalachian bust, authorities would brace for a mob war, asserting that pretty much all hell was about to break loose in the streets. Little did they know that all hell had already broken loose, and that's why that's why they were having the meeting. Uh, the authorities actually had pretty quickly put a lot of the pieces together, including the link to the Anastasia assassination. And this is just in the days immediately after the meeting was caught, uh, which and this indicates to me that it, it was it was no coincidence. They probably knew all this stuff already. Right. It didn't take a dummy to figure this stuff out. If you if you follow what was going on in the mob in 1957, there was some pretty big stuff. Uh, informants were definitely behind the scenes, very expeditiously feeding the authorities information. And more than likely, someone dropped a dime on the meeting. I really believe that. Uh, and I mean, they were they were really out in the middle of nowhere and somehow still got busted. The Binghamton Press would say the following on November 15th, the day after the meeting, 1957. Quote, Joseph Barbara, 51, who dresses expensively, drives a Cadillac and smokes good cigars, is a man who wants to be known as a solid businessman. End quote. And... Of course, uh, none of what I just said was illegal, right? Who doesn't want to have the means to live the high life, right? I mean, I think we can we can all relate to that. But when you're a man who has long been associated with the mob, has been arrested multiple times over the years for many crimes, including murder, and whose business has been you know well known in the area and also well known to to have at one point practiced strong strong arm tactics. Uh, you know, you get kind of a, a reputation and, you know, all of your energy and, and Barbara's energy uh, it had been trying to focus away from from this. Uh, but you don't want anyone focusing on you too much. And the best mobsters are able to divert attention away from their misdeeds and, and they don't want to be front and center. They don't want to be courting that attention. Right. So the publicity that Barbara receives at and after the point of Appalachian, this is pretty much a code red for him. Uh, this is not good. Now, reports from December of 1957 would highlight that Sergeant Edgar Croswell had been interested in Barbara's activities since at least 1944 or 1945, stemming from an incident involving Barbara around that time and Croswell. A story in the Binghamton Press would lay out the incident. Quote, the story really starts back in 1944 and 1945, and State Trooper Edgar D. Croswell triggered it. Now, it is in the State Senate chamber where the Joint Legislative Committee of Government Operations, headed by Assemblyman William S. Haran, is asking 26 of 60 participants in a session at the Appalachian residence of Joseph Barbara Sr. why they were there on November 14th. Sergeant Croswell told the story when asked by Mr. Haran why he was interested in Barbara. It started back in 1944 or 1945 when I was patrolling the road, said the state police sergeant, a member of the plainclothes BCI. I saw a man coming out of the bushes. I questioned him and his answers were vague. So I walked to where he came out of the bushes and I found two five-gallon cans of gasoline. Nearby was a truck owned by Barbara. Thick accent. The man told me that he had stolen the gasoline from Barbara, who then as now operated a bottling company. I called Barbara from the substation. He came down. He spoke with a thick accent and he had a gun on his belt. 
When I explained the situation, Barbara wanted no action taken. Gas was very scarce then, so it aroused my interest. Then Croswell looked into Barbara's past. He found interesting material in Pennsylvania police files. He was known as a big shot in slugging. Barbara had been quizzed in several murder cases, Sergeant Croswell said. In Broome County, the district attorney has a voluminous file on him, he said. Speeding car. The second incident was the speeding white car. Sergeant Croswell referred to it, but Trooper Frederick William Lieb of Troop C, Sydney, explained how it happened. The white car flashed east on Route 17, October 18, 1956, and Trooper Lieb chased it, flagging it down after five miles. Driving was Carmine Galante, a mobster with a long record as subsequently shown. Galante showed a driver's license issued to Joseph de Palermo, another mobster with a narcotic traffic record as later shown. Trooper Lieb couldn't match the physical description on the license with that of the driver. He took the driver into the substation. Other occupants handled the speeding car and subsequently ducked away. Galante wound up in the Broome County Jail on a traffic charge. Sergeant Croswell was intrigued by Galante's record. He checked around and found he testified that Barbara had arranged rooms in Binghamton's Arlington Hotel for Galante and some other choice characters. The bill was sent to Barbara's bottling company. End quote. The report would go on to cite a third incident piquing Croswell's interest in Barbara yet again. Quote, the third incident happened on November 13th this year at the Parkway Motel in Vestal. Sergeant Croswell and an associate were there making a check on a worthless check complaint when, as he testified, I saw young Joseph Barbara, son of the bottler, coming in an, in an auto. I stepped behind the wall into the living room of the proprietor. The proprietor's wife waited on him. He engaged three rooms for the night and charged them to the Canada Dry Bottling Company of Endicott that is owned by Joseph Barbara Sr. He did not know what men were coming. He said a convention of Canada Dry men was being held. Sergeant Croswell was asked why he stepped out of sight when the sun arrived. Normal routine, Sergeant Croswell replied. We have checked on the father's activities a number of times. It's interesting what you hear if you are out of sight. From that incident, Sergeant Croswell stirred around. He found expensive cars in the area. That led to the descent of state police and federal men on the Barbara home the next day. End quote. So you could choose whether or not to believe Croswell's explanation. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that he was a bit of a publicity seeker. Uh, but it's very clear that this confrontation between Croswell and Barbara had been a long time coming. Uh, they were, uh, you know, they were on each other's radars. They they knew each other. And this confrontation, unfortunately, drew in the national syndicate, at least if you believe Croswell's story uh, at its face. Uh, and quite honestly, it was two situations crossing over and really pulling each other into the drain. Uh, and as I stated earlier, you know, I don't buy the story that Croswell was just a goody two shoes law enforcement official with a particular hard on for Barbara. No, I, I'll take that back. I believe that he had a hard on for Barbara. I believe he wanted badly to get Barbara on something and he had been investigating him for many years. But I do believe that there were other things going on. Uh, and I don't believe that it was a coincidence that the meeting got busted up that day. I think he had help, and I think he had collusion on multiple levels leading up to the meeting. Now, 
Two days after the meeting, Barbara's son, Joseph Barbara Jr., who was also picked up during the raid, would be arrested and charged with third-degree assault on a New York City reporter named Charles Carson, who'd been sent to cover the story. Uh, The roundup would also stir up inquiries into old murder cases, including the disappearance of two Endicott hoods 10 years earlier whose bodies had never been found. As you might expect, federal probers would begin to scrutinize Barbara's criminal records and pretty much all of his business operations. And again, this is all, this is code red. This is all completely unwanted attention. While I won't get too much deeper into the Appalachian meeting itself, that'll be probably a whole separate episode at some point in the future, U.S. Attorney Paul W. Williams would be quoted in the Scranton Tribune as saying the following about the national combination. Quote, The meeting was a further indication of a criminal syndicate operating on a nationwide scale with an annual take of $2,280,000,000. The syndicate nets about $180 million in dope, $100 million in extortion, and between $1 billion and $2 billion in off-track gambling. End quote. Now, I don't know where they got those numbers, uh, which seems immense even by today's standards, but that just gives you an idea of the hold that the mob had on the country at the time. And and the astronomical figures. Uh, and again, I don't believe they were that high. They could have been maybe. Uh, but, you know, two billion dollars in the 1950s like that. That seems insane. That seems insane to me. But they definitely were raking money in hand over fist. Right. It's probably not two billion, probably somewhere lower. Uh, but it's Definitely, in my opinion, in the hundreds of millions that the families around the country were were pulling in from various rackets. Now, in the days, weeks and years after Appalachian, the FBI would conduct extensive investigations into the reasons behind the meeting, as well as many of its attendees, including our subject, Joe Barbara. Before long, and some people would argue that even before the meeting had occurred, They had informants feeding them information, some of it accurate and some of it not. And they had pretty much built very large dossiers uh, of information on pretty much all of the attendees. Um, Ostensibly, when apprehended, many of the mafioso would claim that they were visiting a sick friend or that it had been a pleasure trip at the invitation of Barbara. Uh, And while Barbara had become quite literally ill by that point in time, both in reality due to the fiasco that unfolded at his home, uh, you know, he was receiving weekly doctor visits at his home, according to informants. And we know in hindsight that it was most certainly, you know, not the real reason that people were were visiting for the large national gathering. But he really was sick. Now, the falsehood of the sick call excuse, although Barbara, like I just said, was actually sick, was actually shared by another informant who'd had a conversation with Barbara's son, Joseph Barbara Jr., in which the younger Barbara stated, my father did not invite them. They told him they were having the meeting. One of the reports of the true reason for the meeting came from the Albany, New York field office, which details information shared by a confidential informant, dubbed T28, uh, regarding the supposed origins of, of the meeting. Quote, on April 18th, 1958, Albany confidential informant T8, contact with whom has been insufficient to determine reliability and who is an Italian businessman in Appalachia, New York, advised special agents Patrick A. Munley and James C. Mee that he was born and raised at Redacted 
Pennsylvania, and that he has known Dominic Alamo, Russell Buffalino, James Ostico, and Angelo Schiandra, all of Pittston, Pennsylvania, who are hoodlums who attended instant meeting at Joseph Barbara Sr.'s estate on November 14, 1957, as being members of the Sicilian group in the Pittston area. T28 related that Santo Volpe of Pittston, Pennsylvania, is the head of all the Sicilians on the eastern coast and that he is probably the individual who gave the orders for the meeting, which was held at Barbara's. T28 said that Barbara, from his observations of the Sicilians, would rank about either number three or four in the Sicilian group. The informant said that the group that met at Barbara's was made up of mostly muscle men and apparently few of the real leaders of the Sicilians. He said that from his knowledge of the Sicilians, he would say that the meeting was for the purpose of instructing those that were there concerning the new bosses so that they would return to their own areas and pass the word to other Sicilians in the group. T-28 stated that the Sicilians for years have been running the rackets in the Pittston, Pennsylvania area, and that he has observed the activities of the individuals mentioned above who were at the meeting and others in the Pittston area and knows that they have always been involved in some kind of illegal activity, end quote. Now, <clears throat> that's not a report that I believe. And I think that that report probably, of course, if it's uh, somebody in the Pittston area, of course, they're going to think that the guys in the Pittston area were the, the leaders. And if you're on the outside looking in, you really don't probably, you know, probably know about the true expanse and true purpose uh, of the meeting, especially if you're not on the inside or you're not law enforcement. Now, hindsight is 2020. We know that this note is pretty much bullshit, and the meeting was in fact engineered by Vito Genovese. It was handed to Stefano Magadino to organize, who then passed the orders for the tactical execution on to Russell Buffalino and Joe Barbara. On the agenda, of course, uh, many, many topics uh, that you know, some were probably discussed, others probably didn't get a chance to be discussed. But on the agenda, of course, was the assassination of Albert Anastasia, the attempted killing of Frank Costello, the ascension uh, of both Genovese and Carlo Gambino to the heads of their respective families, and of course, uh, any other necessary business discussions. But again, likely not all of that had a chance to be talked about. After the fiasco of the meeting, it was said that Barbara became a bit of a recluse and did not often leave the estate, according to people who work there. I don't think he left the estate at all. Barbara's attending physician, a man named Dr. Louis Borelli, would be noted as somewhat chastising Barbara for having such a large meeting and the level of activity surrounding it, despite doctor's orders to take it easy. But I, I think we know that Barbara's first loyalty and duty was to the mafia. And when the families call, as his son said, he didn't really have a choice. It was, you know, we're having this meeting. The authorities would form a watchdog group to probe the purposes of the meeting. Many grand juries would be convened and many mobsters would be questioned, plead the fifth and or repeat claims of visiting a, a sick, sick friend or, or having a social call and would subsequently be, in many cases, charged with contempt for not giving up the true purpose of the meeting, with a few even uh, doing a small amount of prison time. As for Barbara, the raid essentially ended his career in the mob for all intents and purposes. As of 1958, Barbara's doctor would report that he had a very bad heart condition, and this had been going on throughout the 1950s, but it was exasperated. 
and that the only reason he was still alive by 1958 was due to the fact that he'd had an operation. The doctor would advise that any excitement would quite literally kill him and that Barbara would be under doctor's orders to avoid work going forward. Now, we all know that feigning illness is an old mafia trick to avoid law enforcement's clutches, and the government pressure was white hot. I mean white hot after the Appalachian meeting. However, in this case, the reports were legit. Barbara was very, 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 very sick. By December of 1957, the State Liquor Authority of New York would move to revoke Barbara's uh, license, claiming the funds of the Canada Dry Bottling Company were used uh, secretly to defray expenses incurred by certain persons of notoriously evil reputation. In fact, later reports would show that some of the actual charges for hotel stays related to the attendance of several mobsters would actually be charged to the Canada Dry Bottling Company, right? So totally a business expense. <laughs> uh, Barbara would ultimately choose not to fight those charges. Uh, and in 1958, Barbara approached a fellow colleague in the Canada Dry Bottling Company out of Syracuse named John Bersani, who he asked to handle the sale of his Canada Dry Bottling franchise. And Bersani appears to have helped Barbara sell his stake in the company for approximately $320,000 to $350,000, depending on which report you read, which is roughly $4 million in today's money. Uh, and he would sell it to a man named Carl Tui out of Albany, New York, although some reports, like I said, would quote the, the sale price as being a little bit lower at $250,000. So still for those days, a pretty good sum of money for selling the company. So in addition to grossing several million per year with the plant, uh, Barbara was able to cash out before his health problems would ultimately catch up to him. However, uh, reports two months after he sold his business would indicate Barbara owed various creditors $50,000, which obviously was, was not good. That's not what you want. Uh, in September of 1958, reports out of the Buffalo News would indicate that Barbara's lavish 58-acre estate would be put up for auction. And in May of 1959, reports indicated that Barbara would sell his home for $130,000 to a developer who in turn immediately announced plans to convert it into a tourist attraction. Uh, and the infamous estate would open up for public tours in May of 1959. Barbara himself would move back to Endicott, New York. And by this point, it's clear he was unloading assets, was in failing health, and his life had become somewhat of a media spectacle with almost daily stories in various newspapers with his name front and center, either directly himself or related to stories about other mobsters. He was he was in lots of reports all across the country. Uh, by November of 1958, a year after the raid, Barbara faced arrest when he refused to honor a subpoena by failing to show up to testify in front of the New York State Investigative Commission. Barbara's attorneys would appeal the court ruling, which had contended that the subpoena had been taped to his door in September of 1958. They would appeal that that was not legally served. Now, they literally taped the subpoena to his door because Barbara had refused to come out and they went out onto the road with a bullhorn and yelled that a subpoena had been taped to his door. That actually happened. In February of 1959, Barbara's son, Joe Jr., 
would be arrested and indicted on five counts of perjury related to his testimony. And because the bad news just wouldn't stop by this point in 1959, in March of 59, Joseph Barbara Sr., who had forestalled any and all attempts to question him for almost a year and a half, was finally indicted for income tax evasion of all things. The 11 count indictment handed down by the federal grand jury in Syracuse, New York, charged Barbara with failure to report $38,000 in taxable income from 1952 to 1956 and making fraudulent returns for his beverage business in 1954, 55, and 56. If convicted, he was facing 43 years in prison and a fine of $80,000. And I think we know that by this point, this is a classic law enforcement approach. If you can't get the well-insulated gangster on any other charges, you follow their tax returns, and that's just what they did here. Just a month after his indictment, Barbara would finally finally come out of hiding and show up in a courtroom in a wheelchair where the media would get their first picture of him in many years. Uh, but he remained tight-lipped, refusing to give up any information and complaining that he didn't feel so good, which I actually believe. Uh, this would be the, the first time that he was out of seclusion in about 18 months after the raid. And probably, uh, from what I understand, from what I read, it was probably his last time. He would post his $10,000 bail, plead innocent, and return home, though he would be declared fit to stand trial. And when you hear what I'm about to, to read, um, well, not I think most people thought he was faking. And while these law enforcement tactics, you know, they were definitely going after him by this point, might have ultimately worked on Barbara, in the end, it wouldn't matter. On May 30th, 1959, Barbara would suffer yet another heart attack for which he would be admitted to Wilson Memorial Hospital in Johnson City, New York, where his condition would be reported as acutely ill and he was in critical condition. Just a few weeks later, on June 17th, 1959, that, you know, Barbara's troubles for all intents and purposes would come to an end when he would die of complications related to the May 30th heart attack at the age of 53 at Wilson Memorial Hospital in Johnson City, New York. He would go to the grave without revealing anything. After word spread of his passing, FBI documents would suggest that more than 500 underworld figures reached out to the family to pay their respects. The report would read as follows. Quote, in the report of Special Agent Arthur V. Hart, dated August 26, 1959, at Albany, page 26, information is set out obtained by New York from confidential informant Albany T4 on June 23, 1959, who said he attended the funeral of Joseph Barbara Sr. between June 18 and June 22, 1959, at Binghamton, New York. He mentioned that Joseph Barbara Jr. came into Ryan's bar on several occasions with five large sheets of paper containing a list of an estimated 500 names of underworld people who wished their respects to be paid to the Joseph Barbara Sr. family. 
The informant explained that when a person in Barbara's position died, combination people call their immediate boss and ask if they are to attend the funeral. And in the event they are advised against going or are unable to attend, they ask that their names be put on the list. The informant said that the list is then carried to the family of the deceased. And after the funeral, the family will send a thank you note as if flowers or some other gift had been received. End quote. So, whether it was just mafia protocol or not, 500 people sending their respects is quite a lot. And, you know, something I think we would all aspire to when we're when we're gone. It was a big show of respect for who Barbara was. Now, most members were ultimately advised to stay away, but sent their respects and the names I came across in FBI reports who sent representatives to pay their respects were pretty much a who's who of the mob and included people uh, sent by the likes of Vito Genovese, Tony Accardo, Meyer Lansky, Vincent, Vincent Rao, Mike Miranda, Carmine Galanti, as well as guys from New Orleans who were unnamed. And some other members even eschewed the warnings. They fore- forewent the warnings and attended the funeral anyway. Uh, and this uh, most notably included the Magliocco brothers, Joe and Tony of the Profaci family. Now, this is respect. This is ultimate uh, ultimate respect in that world. According to a note I read, there was a prominent belief amongst the mob and family members that law enforcement had hounded Barbara so much after Appalach and that they were primarily responsible for his death. And in the days before the funeral, when Barbara's body was being stored at his home, there were guards present to shake down and question any people visiting the home whenever they did not appear to be, quote unquote, one of the boys. In all, 125 people would attend Barbara's funeral, including several Appalachian attendees at the Cavalry Cemetery in Johnson City within Broome County, New York. He would be buried in a silver-plated and copper-lined casket, though the funeral would take place, unfortunately for his family and friends, under rainy, glowering skies, and it was pretty, uh, seemed like a pretty miserable drizzle of rain falling on the group. As the funeral reached its conclusion, Barbara's 20-year-old grief-stricken daughter screamed at, screamed at photographers and news reporters covering the funeral, lashing out with the following, quote, Don't you have a guilty conscience? You call us murderers, but you're the biggest murderers of all, end quote. And honestly... Who can blame her for being upset? Uh, This is, after all, her father, and he was still relatively young. He was in his early 50s. But the flip side is that he was a leader within the mafia, and the people who tend to suffer most, I think this is probably pretty well known and pretty well communicated, are the uh, you know, the families of mobsters. And, and again, when I say people suffer, I'm not counting the victims of these mobsters. Obviously, those people suffer the most, but the families of the mobsters uh, who are often left to clean up the the mess. Um, so when I hear stories like this, while dramatic and certainly made for television, it also kind of fills me with a little bit of a little bit of, you know, sadness to, you know, think of a think of a family, uh, you know, who is pretty, you know, can can be pretty much considered probably torn apart to some degree by this type of this type of thing. And I think it's uh, Michael Francis, uh, say what you will about him, but I think he has said many times that every single family that's in that life, for the most part, uh, has has you know suffered, uh, has experienced great suffering 
uh, and it just comes with the life. So while Joseph Barbara's name is often an afterthought in the pantheon of mob lore, I can promise you that this guy was one of the more underrated, powerful, and respected guys in the country at one point in time uh, within the American Cosa Nostra. However, he is more often than not thought of in, in I would say, a negative light due to the, to the way things ended, which, to be honest, really wasn't his fault. He shouldered a lot of the weight for what happened, fairly or unfairly, but he kept his mouth shut and he went to the grave with everybody's secrets. He was a stand-up guy. Though he tried to be a respectable businessman in his later years, he came up as a true blue gangster, and I thought his mob career, while, again, I don't like to glorify violence but this is the this is the genre we've chosen was worth a deep dive and i sincerely hope that you thought it was as interesting as i did an article in the binghamton press the day after barbara's death summed up barbara's life with an idealistic and for this episode appropriate view of barbara's life and vision before and after the events that he is most widely associated with i won't read the the whole article as i think only the first part is pertinent quote Sicilian immigrants' dream was smashed by headlines. Respectability exploded after raid. Joseph Barbara, who tried to disguise an underworld life behind a facade of genteel respectability, lived to see his cherished dream dashed in a wave of headlines, investigations, and notoriety. His very name and the name of Appalachian, where he had lived as a country squire, became synonyms of big-time crime. The short, stocky, black-haired man came to this country in 1921 from Sicily as an obscure immigrant. Hardworking. He had lived in the Endicott, Appalachian area since 1934. Until the notorious gangland convention at his Appalachian estate, he was regarded by almost all those who knew him as a hardworking and successful businessman. Few had any idea that Barbara's past contained links to unsolved murders in the Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pittston area, or that he was well acquainted with many of the country's top hoodlums. The facade he had worked so hard to create was destroyed on the balmy afternoon of November 14, 1957, when he played host at what was to become the most famous barbecue in history. End quote. After Barbara's death, his close friend, as we talked about, Russell Buffalino, would officially kind of take over the Cosa Nostra family of northeastern Pennsylvania and would swallow up all of the area that Barbara controlled, which would eventually become to known as the Buffalino crime family. He would go on to rule the family for roughly the next 30 years, and you know, Buffalino himself would garner an incredible amount of respect and underworld notoriety in his own part, uh, and he would go down as being probably one of the most respected figures in the history of the American Cosa Nostra. But the man before Buffalino was Barbara, and I really think his area should be remembered, uh, even despite how things ended. So, again, that's kind of why I did this episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
Okay, so that's it for this episode. Uh, as always, as I promised, the, you know, we're going to keep the detail, even if I do try to move faster. And I sincerely hope that you learned something in this episode that maybe you didn't know before. I know I found out plenty of new information, especially going back and trying to understand the history of what became the Buffalino crime family and who came before and kind of delineating who was in charge, Barbara or Buffalino and, and all the guys before that. It was a little bit confusing to sort out. So hopefully like you have a, a little bit of a better understanding now more things coming. There's going to be more interviews. I'm going to start to do a lot of interviews. I'm lining those up uh, and maybe some of those will be released even before this episode is released. I've got an ongoing series uh, that's going to happen throughout 2024 lined up with a particular interviewee where we cover mob lawyers uh, and this person I would consider to be a subject matter expert uh, and we're going to talk about all the different mob lawyers. Uh, we've got Roy Cohn on the docket, George Remus, and, you know, we're going to go go from there. Uh, second, you know, I think I think after this, I'm going to go back and really try to finish the Angelo Bruno saga. We've taken it all the way up until the end of the 1960s, just at the point where things really start to get interesting. We're going to cover the 1970s. And quite honestly, that's probably going to be focused less on like the the events and more on the mistakes that ultimately lead up to his demise over the course of that decade in the 1980s. We'll step back and we'll do an episode on all the hits, right? He was known as the the gentle Don or the docile Don, but I can promise you there were plenty of hits that took place during his time, even though that number probably quadrupled after he, you know, after he was assassinated, you know, and, and Scarfo eventually took over that number definitely quadrupled. But it's still worth talking about because, you know, people assume that no hits ever took place. Well, no, hits, hits definitely took place uh, in and around the Philadelphia area under Angelo Bruno. So he wasn't as gentle as people thought he was. Uh, and then, of course, the last episode of the Bruno series is going to get into his actual murder, the events of that particular day. Uh, before we close, if you'd like to get in touch with me, Again, you could still email me at, you know, members only podcast show at gmail.com. But I do have a new email associated with the Gangland History Podcast, and it is quite simply Gangland History Podcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to email me, happy to talk shop. If you'd like to be a potential interviewee, if you think you're good for that, happy to talk about that as well. If you'd like to suggest somebody, happy to talk about that as well. For those of you that are longtime listeners, just know I really appreciate the support. Um, you know, I'm still a small channel growing, and I appreciate each and every one that has taken the time out of their day to support my content. Uh, I hope you'll understand the reason for the name change. Um, I think, you know, it's uh, I, I've got some pretty compelling reasons to have done it. I loved the other name. Let's be clear. Loved the other name. Uh, but I think this new name has a little bit more mass appeal and that's kind of what I'm looking for. For those of you that are new listeners, let me know what you think in the comments below. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed my content. Hopefully you enjoyed the detail and hopefully you'll subscribe. Uh, just know that in the future, we've got a Patreon channel and lots of other things coming. Uh, we're going to redo the merch store. I'm redoing my website. Um, there's lots of things coming down the pipe. I'm hoping to put out two to three times as much content, if not more, as I did historically in 2024 and beyond but i'll end it as i always do until next time grazie
Thank you for listening to the Gangland History Podcast. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out our Patreon channel. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. If you're an audio-only listener, subscribe via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,